When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 42, Reaction and Retrenchment. Despite Athelbert's official adoption of the new Christian creed, he seems to have been largely unsuccessful in promoting it among his courtiers. His own son, Eadbald, refused to accept the faith. Upon his father's death in 616, his pagan heir ascended the throne of Kent. At this time, Bede tells us Eardbald was offered baptism, but the young king refused. Instead, he opted to marry his stepmother, which contravened church law, and made it clear that he had no interest in Christianity. So, Kent entered a period of what we refer to as pagan reaction. The identity of Eardbald's stepmother is unknown. It seems that Bertha predeceased Athelbert, tradition says around 606, after this, the king allegedly remarried, but no source records the name of his second wife. She must have been significantly younger than her husband, since in 616 she was presumably still of childbearing age, while her husband had been born around 580. Possibly she was also pagan, since her choice to marry Eardbald in contradiction to ecclesiastical law suggests that she was not especially wedded to the rules of the church. I've yet to see much comment on the suggestion that Athelbert's second wife was pagan, but if this was the case, then it serves to further demonstrate how little impact his conversion had on the wider kingdom of Kent. As for the details of Eadbald's reaction, it has to be said that they are a bit sketchy. Bede says that the reign of Eadbald was a severe setback for the church, because the king had refused to be baptised and thus refused to patronise the church and the Christian missions. In response, he says that many Kentish people who had converted under Athelbert's influence resumed their pagan practices so as to win favour with the new king. Bede explicitly calls Eadbald an apostate, but technically this was not so since he had seemingly never accepted Christianity to begin with, and thus he couldn't reject it in the terms that an apostate would. Regardless, Bede 
doesn't provide very much detail about the nature of the pagan reaction in Kent. He only tells us that it allegedly happened. It doesn't seem that Eadbald oversaw any kind of systematic persecution of the church, as can be inferred from discussion of the pagan reaction which occurred at this same time in the neighbouring kingdom of Essex. If you recall from last episode, under Athelbert's influence, Sabert, king of the East Saxons, had converted to Christianity and allowed the Kentish king to establish a bishopric in the settlement of Londonwick, or London as it is today. Upon Sabert's death in 616, his three sons divided Essex between them and set about their own pagan reaction. As part of this, they expelled Melitus, the Bishop of London, and exiled him from the kingdom. In response, Melitus went to Kent to meet with Lawrence, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Justus, the Bishop of Rochester, to discuss their options. Although Bede presents this as a catastrophe for the church in England, his story actually reveals the different tones of the pagan reactions in Kent and Essex. Where the East Saxons expelled their one bishop, it seems that the bishops of Kent were not forced to leave their sees. Whether this meant that Eadbald was tolerant of the church, but chose not to join it, is unclear. But it does give one pause that he apparently did not set about ransacking its institutions in the manner that the term pagan reaction might suggest. That a kind of tolerance for the church while refusing to join it was Eadbald's position could potentially be inferred by the example of later pagan rulers, specifically Pender, who, even though Bede goes out of his way to vilify him as a pagan ruler, he nevertheless is forced to admit that Pender was tolerant of Christians living in Mercia, so it's possible that Eadbald may have held a similar position. This is all very scanty evidence, though, and it doesn't really let us say very much with confidence about the nature of Eadbald's pagan reaction. Indeed, all that Bede really tells us about Eadbald's early reign is that he was often beset by fits of madness, which Bede claims were due to his paganism and the influence of evil spirits, which God was using to chastise and correct him. Although Bede doesn't actually say anything more about Eadbald's madness. For example, he doesn't give us any specific instances of Eadbald doing anything mad, or otherwise objectionable. It's possible that Bede was not keen to slander Eadbald too harshly, since the king did eventually submit to baptism and thus became a Christian ruler. The exact circumstances in which this happened and when it occurred are debated. Bede suggests that the conversion occurred quite soon after Eadbald became king. He presents the whole story about Lawrence preparing to flee to the continent and being visited by the Apostle Peter, who proceeded to beat him. The next day, Bede tells us Lawrence showed his wounds to Eadbald, who was so amazed that he converted on the spot. The traditional dating for this conversion, if not for the vision, is 616 or 617. On the other hand, D.P. Kirby has argued that a letter sent by Pope Boniface to Eadbald's sister Athelbert around the year 621 indicates that the king didn't convert until closer to that year. Boniface wrote to Athelbert in response to her marriage to Edwin of Northumbria. At this time, Edwin was still pagan, and Boniface urged Athelbert to convert her husband. Much as Gregory the Great had written to Bertha, encouraging her to serve as an example of Christian virtue to her husband and the people of Kent, 
While Boniface's letter acknowledges Eadbald's conversion, his allusions to it suggest that it had occurred only recently. For what reason, he doesn't say, but the suggestion from this made by Kirby is that the pagan reaction lasted longer than Bede suggests, possibly up to the early 620s. It is possible then that, rather than Lawrence, as Bede suggests, it may have been Melitus who converted Eadbald, since in around 619 Melitus returned from the continent and was installed as Archbishop of Canterbury, a position he held until around 624. One possible archaeological remain of the pagan reaction may be the famous Fingalsham belt buckle. This is a golden belt buckle depicting a figure who seems to be naked, besides a horned helmet and wielding two spears, who is sometimes interpreted as the god Woden. Stylistically, this belt buckle has been dated to around the early 7th century, so possibly coincidental with Eadbald's pagan reaction. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this. It also helps when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel or when you become a supporter over on Patreon where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to Chris Keen 
and Steve Waszkiewicz, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope that you're enjoying the extra material that you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. Extending the period of Eadbalt's paganism alters the traditional interpretation of his relations with other kingdoms, specifically Northumbria. Bede's account of Athelbert's marriage holds that it was dependent on either Edwin tolerating his wife's Christianity or on his accepting it. As I talked about in the Edwin episode, if conversion was a condition of their union, then Edwin did not uphold his end of the deal, dithering as he did about converting. However, Kirby's suggestion hints that conversion may not have been a part of the deal, since Eadbald may well have still been pagan at the time of the marriage's negotiation. Thus, rather than a means of asserting religious dominance, the union becomes an entirely secular affair. And indeed, it is in the world of secular affairs that we get a sense of how Eadbald's reign affected the continuing position of Kent within England. His time on the throne saw fairly little change overall, besides a general shrinking of Kent's influence over its neighbours. Eadbald was never able to restore the Bishopric of London, or to convert the East Saxons in the way that his father had, indicating that he lacked his father's influence in that kingdom. Yet the marriage of his sister to Edwin indicates the respects that Eadbald was still afforded, Probably Edwin came to Eadbald due to the Kentish king's continued control of trade with the continent. Fleeing from the violence of Athelfrith, Edwin must have seen in Eadbald a means to gain wealth and power, which made him an appealing in-law. There is plenty of evidence that Eadbald continued the close ties between Kent and Francia. Upon his conversion, Eadbald set aside his first wife, who had so scandalised the church, and instead married a Christian Frankish woman by the name of Emma. Traditionally, it has been suggested that this was Emma, the daughter of King Theudebert of Austrasia, to whom Gregory had written requesting safe passage for his missionaries heading to Kent, and whose letter at least rhetorically suggested that Theudebert had some overlordship or some political influence in Kent. See the last episode for more on that. Eardbald's marriage to Theudebert's daughter would be conclusive proof that the Austrasians and the Kentishmen continued their close relations even after Athelbert's death. The names of at least one of the children that the Union produced also attest to continued Frankish cultural influence in Kent. The names of those children were Eormenred, Eorkenbert, and Eanswith. The name Eorkenbert especially has a Frankish first element, possibly reflective of the Kentish-Frankish nature of Eadbald and Emma's marriage. It is worth noting that some scholars have doubted that Emma was the daughter of Theudebert, and suggest instead that she was a daughter of the leader of Neustria. The details of this argument don't really matter all that much to what we're talking about here, since either way, Eadbald followed up his conversion by marrying the daughter of a Frankish lord, demonstrating the continued close ties that existed between Kent and Francia. It was also under Eadbald that we find our first Kentish coinage in the form of golden thrimsas. There are references in the laws of Athelbert to coinage in Kent, but none of this has survived. Instead, it's from Eadbald's time that we have coins. 
Interestingly, only a small number of these coins bear Eadbald's name. Later, royal names and images were standard on all coins, but in this early period, it seems that the kings had not yet established a monopoly on coin production. Eadbald's early forays, though, make it clear that he was attempting to break into this lucrative area. Trade was almost certainly the backbone of Kent's influence in this period. The Kentish kings were the wealthiest and the most well-connected in England. This made Eadbald and his family a magnet for diplomatic marriages. His son and heir Eochenbert, for example, became son-in-law to King Anna of East Anglia, and his daughter, so Eadbald's granddaughter, became wife to Wolfhera of Mercia. Likewise, Eadbald's niece became the wife of King Oswiu. Through these connections, Kent became a major vector through which Christianity and its bureaucratic innovations might spread throughout England. Indeed, Edwin, following the example of Kent, sought to establish an archbishopric at York with staff from Canterbury, specifically the churchman Paulinus. These plans crumbled, though, with Edwin's death, and the Augustinian mission failed to make much headway outside of Kent. It did, though, succeed in retaining control of the Kentish throne, and after Eadbald, Kent never again was host to a pagan reaction. In many ways, under Eadbald, the church had retrenched itself, despite its initial setback. However, during this time, and even after his death in 641, Kent still struggled to reach the level of real influence that it had wielded under Athelbert, and it increasingly became subject to the whims of younger kingdoms. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you have, then again, it really helps me to get this out there and keep this going. If you support us in any way that you can through sharing or liking or subscribing or whatever. But in the meantime, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I hope you'll join me again next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.